Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. All right. Well, welcome, everyone. Uh, I'm here with my friend Sharon, who I used to work with at Heroku long ago. And I wanted to have Sharon on because I think she created the best kind of company culture that I've ever been a part of, or, or I don't know how you would frame your role in it. I, I blame you, um, but I, I just because I think you did such an amazing job, and um, and you obviously had a team of people and, and all that, and we can get into that, but, but I just always look so fondly back on my time at Heroku because it, it, was, it was a warm, welcoming environment for for i think everyone but i you know i guess i'm in a privileged position so hopefully it was for everyone what was your title there mm -hmm. you, you had an interesting name i think for it right so so we called me the vibe manager the vibe manager and then i think you said at your current role mm -hmm. you have a, a name what, what's the name of that mm -hmm. head of people and culture head of people and culture and i like both of those because they have kind of gone against the trend of um, you know, like they used to call it, uh, you know, the title has gone from a bunch of different things. It used to be called human resources. And then they decided, oh, we don't need, it can just be resources. So there's a lot of companies who this, this role, they just call it resources and they don't even mention that there are humans involved. And I think, oh, this is not a trend I like, Yeah, not a company I want to work for Yeah, where I'm just a resource. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, so we, um, just to set a little more context, so Bruce and I talk about culture a lot in terms of developers and companies, and there's so many times in our conversations where I'm like, oh my gosh, Heroku did this so well, and Heroku Heroku was just the the example for me on on how to do culture well, and so that's where I'm like, oh, we got to talk to Sharon. So anyways, here we are. I so, love it. Yeah, so do you, you. do you have like a philosophy for culture? Mm. Um, yeah. So, and that's a different question than asking me to define what culture is. Um, and I appreciate that because I don't really have a canned answer. Um, to me, it's a, it is a very like abstract feelings based thing. Um, and so my philosophy, how I enter into culture, how I originally thought about it, um, was the vibe. Honestly, when I, when I got into this, I, I really, culture wasn't a word that was on my radar. Um, yeah. it was like in 2005 when I had my first five manager job. Um, and I had come from a completely different world. I was working in dinner theater. I was a, a camp counselor, scuba diver, um, huh. studying like, uh, marine biology. So, wow. so for me to end up in San Francisco working at a startup, um, as a vibe manager, which at the time I thought I was just being funny, um, or clever or like going right. against the grain, right. Because I think I was vaguely aware of the human resources, uh, title, but I definitely didn't want that because I'm not a rule follower. I'm not going to implement right. rules. Um, yeah. I'm a vibe manager. So for me, so it was I originally a bit, a bit like subversive for, for like, Oh, we're not going to do things that way. But I, I love the word vibe because that's when I talk about Heroku a lot, I'm like, the vibe was so good. And vibe just kind of captures captures what you were doing and, and why everyone felt so good. Well, and in contrast, we have a friend who I won't name 
who had some trouble with a company and she came out of it saying, when you have trouble with the company, you never want to talk to human resources because their job is to defend the company, not to advocate for you. Yes. So that's like the, the really awful yeah. opposite end of what it sounds like you were trying to achieve. Totally. And I, it, you know, and it breaks my heart when I hear that. Um, I've been fortunate, I think, to interact with, you know, human resources professionals who I do think have the best interests of the employee in mind. Um, but it's also a really tricky position where you need to speak for the highest good of all the employees and the business. Um, and sometimes things can't be reconciled and you just need to say the thing that supports the person um, to make their own decision. Um, and so, yeah, you have your own opinions and thoughts, but, but you're not, you can't say them out loud, <laughs> you know, you yeah. have to like, walk this tightrope, but, um, but totally. Um, I didn't want that. I didn't want, want to be that. Yeah. I was, um, this was years ago when I was really trying to figure out, you know, what company culture was. And um, so I was looking at various different definitions. And I think I heard this on a podcast where somebody summarized it as saying, culture is everything we punish and reward. Huh. And I mean, it's interesting because then, then there's also the, the definition by, uh, the 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 geneticist um, where he taught I think you know they, I think he wrote the selfish gene and things like that huh. and he was talking about so you have uh, genes and then you have memes and genes are transmitted through sexual reproduction and memes are transmitted through you know groups of people getting together and talking about things. Huh. And so the meme is the unit of cultural transmission. Huh. I don't know. That's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. I love that. Um, so what, 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 tell us about the vibe at Heroku and why mm -hmm. I have such fond memories of it. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> so, oh man, so many of us do, right? Like this, the story of Heroku, um, I think many of us are still looking back fondly and wondering what was it that was so special? Like, yeah. you know, if we could bottle that up and, um, and over the years I've, you know, uh, met with different folks who are looking to try and implement a culture like Heroku, which is impossible. You can't do it. And it's, yeah. um, so, so, so what was it? What was it? A lot of it was innocence and, um, just like a real, like, just, mm, I don't know that we were working off of any blueprints. We just kind of were being who we were. And it goes back to the founders, of course, and the chemistry that they had with each other and their intention for starting Heroku and the actual product that they built, um, the problem that they were trying to solve. Um, that, that was the, that was the core um, yeah. I, I think this other piece that's interesting to mention, and um, there is a little bit of like Burning Man history there, Burning Man culture. And I don't know if you're familiar um, with Burning Man. Bruce has been four times, four times, but four a times. long time ago. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, last time was like 2007. So, okay, cool. So, 
so um so my understanding of of burning man it's uh all about potential right and all ideas are good it's very much a say yes place and so for me coming from a different background um and landing at heroku i had all these like really great ideas kind of based off of my experience working with children um working um uh, in dinner theater restaurants performance and like how to create like a fun place to be for for employees so that they could be really productive and feel happy and whole and healthy and the founders would just say yes yes huh. great idea <laughs> do it yeah. and huh. i got that and that was very different i realized in the future you know like working at other places um I would get sideways looks or I'm not sure if that will work, but at Heroku, it was like a sure, why not give it a try. Huh. Um, and that really allowed, I think some of those really great ideas to come through and take root. Yeah. Yeah. And as you were thinking about your answer, one of the things that I saw even illustrated just then was the thoughtfulness of it, that, that people were, were thoughtful and kind around those crazy ideas and, and that it, yeah, it wasn't a immediate resistant, no, you can't do that. No, that won't work. It was. But hmm. see, that's a cultural thing, too. Yeah. How are we around new ideas? Do we first run them up the flagpole and see if they will profit the shareholders? Right. Or and do we, we think about what the lawyers will say? Or yeah, do we, have, we have to be really careful. We can't just be trying experiments willy nilly and seeing what happens because, you know, bad things could occur. Oh. Yeah. Or, or is it, well, yeah, try whatever. And then it's sort of a fast uh, experiment and feedback cycle. Yeah. Well, it was also in, you know, actually you hear people talk about hire, hire talented folks and then get out of the way. Like that doesn't always happen. So I feel like in, 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 in the beginning of Heroku, that's kind of what was happening. Huh. Like, let's trust, let's trust let's trust our people to create the environment that they want to be in. And then we'll just be there to support them. Huh. So that brings up an interesting, one of the things that I've noticed about, um, I don't know, I guess organizations in general is that you can have this, uh, I don't know, Camelot period where everything is awesome. And yet because of the external forces that we have in, you know, patriarchal capitalistic systems, eventually that's going to be worn down and whatever. And, and so it's always an ephemeral experience hmm. and which I never wanted, you know, I always wanted to go, no, we can make this last. But now I look at it and go, yeah, if I was going into the job market now, I would look for the most awesome place to be, but also understand that it wasn't going to stay that it's way. It's not going to last forever. It's like, and you have to like see, oh yeah, we've, we've hit the peak and now it's starting to decline. And now I need to go hunt for the next awesome place to be so that I maintain my, the quality of my experience. Huh. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. There's a lot to be said about that. Where should we go? Right. Um, and like, how long can you, how long can culture resist the forces of yeah. patriarchy and unless you unless you build it into the foundation and it's honestly there which is really hard because once you go public your legal responsibility is to maximize shareholder value 
So with the, um, with Heroku specifically, you know, we were acquired by Salesforce, um, maybe three, four years into, into my time there. Um, and that is what drove the, the changes for us. Um, because Salesforce has, it has its own culture, um, and more momentum, more power, just larger, bigger energy. Right. And, um, when, when, when we were acquired, they really, they really did their best to give us the space to kind of continue to blossom in our own way. But at the end of the day, I think, uh, some of us were in denial about the reality of the situation and how long we could hold on to what we had. And, um, you know, we needed to hire, you know, new and different perspectives into the group. And I don't think that we had a strong enough structure in place to communicate to those folks who we were um, and or to use that as a rubric for who we did and did not hire. Um, mm -hmm. And we needed to uh, collaborate and integrate with this larger company um, and in order to like benefit from so many of the programs that they had to offer. And that really kind of, it was nice for a little while. Like there was a lot of curiosity from the Salesforce side. Um, but then um, there was also a lot of frustration uh, because, you know, they, they just needed to get things done. And maybe there wasn't time to like deal with Heroku being special. <laughs> um, yeah. And um, well, I remember one of the tensions that, that I, that I saw um, happen was uh, Heroku um, provided lunch for everyone every day mm -hmm. and Salesforce did not provide lunch for everyone every day. And so it created this tension where it was like, Oh, why do the Heroku people get lunch every day? And we don't. Mm. And, and so I think they ultimately ended up doing away with Heroku lunch, I think, because it just seemed like this unfair thing between, between different parts of the company. And, um, so yeah, there was just kind of these tensions that arose because like in some ways Salesforce wanted Heroku because it was special, but being special also creates tension. Well, and Google does, you know, meals, but they have a clear objective. They go, we want people to rub elbows and exchange ideas. And so without that, I mean, it sort of sounds to me like what you're saying is you lucked into a great culture for a while, but didn't actually have these foundational concepts in place. So when uh, Salesforce bought you, you didn't have a way to say, no, we, these are our foundational ideas and here's why we do things. It just got worn away over time, like slowly. Mm -hmm. And the founders left and Sharon left, you know, it's just like the people that were kind of the, that, I think the foundation of that culture was people. And when those people left, then it deteriorated slowly. Is that accurate? Thank you. Yes, I wasn't sure how I was going to say that, but I love that the foundation was the was the people. Um, but I will say that the Heroku culture elements of it did live on. Um, For sure. And 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 I I have connected with folks who you know have been working there at Heroku even recently, 
you know, in the past year or two, and they know about the Vibe team. They love Heroku, and their Heroku is totally different than what I remember. Um, but there's still that like magic that exists. Um, huh. And I think the other even part of it changed. Even though it's changed, there is still there is still something magical there. It just doesn't look like it did when we were there. Right. Right. So. Um, in your current role, based on what you learned from the past, uh, how do you, do you, do you think it's possible to consciously create culture? Mm. And when, and if you can, what aspects can you create and what can't you? Mm -hmm. I think it's possible to influence it. So, so where I start, okay. So, so back to your original question about my philosophy, so I think about landscape architecture and interior design. So and with both of these kind of disciplines, the way that I approach it, let's say you get a, you get a plot of land, you're, you're, you're given a garden and do whatever you like to this garden, make it better, uh, make it thrive. And I'm going to walk in and I'm going to look at, um, well, what plants are already really succeeding and doing really well? And how can I like help those plants to do even better? And where are the areas that are kind of like neglected and not could, just aren't really thriving? And where are the natural pathways? And where's the most sunlight? Where's the area that people are gonna wanna sit? And I start to like work with the land in that way um, to highlight and nurture the things that are really working. Um, same thing with interior design. When you go to like, you know, redo a space like you could gut the entire space or you could look for those elements that add character um and and make the space feel welcoming and then build around that so when i come into a new culture that's what i'm doing i'm observing like what is working um what has potential um and where is there wasted energy and just so focus with yeah. that analogy um I mean, it's fairly, I'm sure you've seen the, the Netflix culture deck or whatever it is right. called. And there, uh, you know, to take that analogy, they will sometimes weed out anti-cultural el or elements that they think are not contributing to the culture. And they have a very strong way of doing that, which is just, you know, if this person was leaving, how hard would you... You know, imagine that a person is leaving. How hard would you work to keep them? And if the answer is not really, then you should move them on right now. You know, don't mm -hmm. let the don't let their um, culture degrade the culture that you have. And so they have that little mental test. What's your uh, yeah. thinking about that? Um. So I think that there is a good place for everyone to be and they should be in that place. Um, I think too often we try to make things work that just aren't working. My personal kind of mantra is, okay, we could work this out. We have the skills and the drive and the know-how to, to improve any situation and succeed. But sometimes the goal is just to move forward, right? Do we wanna sit here and spin our wheels? Or do we want to take our chances somewhere else where like who we are will truly be celebrated and where that place like really turns us on. And so 
I think we get sentimental or worry about failure or what it might look like and this or that. But if it's not, if it's not working and we don't feel good about ourselves or the situation, I a hundred percent support moving forward to a better place. It's, it's interesting that in the metaphors that you used, the, the word that came to mind for me was, was beauty. Like the, like you, you in interior design and landscape design, you want to like create beauty. And I think that that's part of the, the like memory I have of Heroku was that the culture was beautiful and was thriving, like plants thriving. Um, but, but there was also this element that that weaved into beauty, which was Heroku also did focus on actual, like, like visual beauty as well. Like the office was beautiful. The swag was beautiful, you know? So there's this interesting kind of beauty element to it. I don't know. What do you, is that something you think about? A hundred percent. And, and this is like my embarrassing little thing. Um, but I think about Brock flower, you know, like, you know, sacred geometry, how the, you know, how, yeah just like the little microcosms and macrocosms and how things kind of reflect each other and like fractals. Um, yeah. Right. So like, that's the, that's the visual I get and how I, how I viewed it. So the way that, that I was reinforcing the, the product and intention or the impact that we wanted to have on our customers and how we wanted the team to build in the way that we designed the office and the programs and the workflows that we designed internally. So everything we used internally should be beautiful so that we build beautiful things for our customers. That's not common. (laughs) Like a lot of times companies use these like terrible tools. Things are so much better now though, um, across the board, but, uh, or these like ridiculous, inefficient like workflows, that don't celebrate the user. And yet that's the type of product we're supposed to build for other people. Right. Why don't we get that? I guess there's a potential cultural mismatch where if you're telling your developers and product managers and designers to build something beautiful for your customers, but you're not also doing that for your employees, then there's a discongruity there that it sends a message. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was that congruity yeah. at Heroku was, was huge. Like, like, yeah, the office space was beautiful. The the mm-hmm. swag that the vibe team gave the employees was beautiful. You know, like like, and so I think that that just set the culture or example of like, yes, we create beautiful things for everyone. <laughs> I I went there once. I think you arranged it and spoke about something, and I still remember that the space was interesting and the yeah kind of everything about it was pretty interesting yeah and i was I was sort of like huh i wonder wonder what it'd be like to work here yeah well and, and like sharon was also saying like even the the employee tools that we had to use were also beautiful like you know the if if sharon ever sent out a form for an employee to fill out it wasn't a crappy looking form like it was designed and it looked nice and slides that we used for internal presentations were very nice and Oh my gosh, I got to call it Todd, who is just right. uh, such an amazing designer and, and uh, really worked, I think, a lot with you on on creating that beauty. That sounds like a terrible waste of money just to develop, just to get data from people. Can't you just do it simpler and 
toss it out there and not, not mess with those details. They're just the employees. Why should they care yeah, what, exactly. what a form looks we like? We pay them. Isn't that enough? <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, here's a, you know, a little deeper here. Um, mm -hmm. When you're, because it seems like the kind of things you're talking about, and maybe this is the reason that a great place can only be a an ephemeral experience is because of what you could call a dominance hierarchy or a patriarchy. And in our culture, in our, you know, like Western culture, it's really hard to keep that from seeping in. And mm -hmm. eventually somebody's going to come in who sees the whole place as something to game and gain uh, dominance over. And how mm -hmm. can you possibly work against that you know how can you possibly keep that from happening because to me that's what makes a place somewhere i don't want to work is that if people are in there going okay well here's our org chart and here's my position of power above you and here's you know it's like eh, i i can't see org charts yeah. I've, i visited so many companies where somebody wants to show me the org chart and my brain just kind of blanks out when they show it's like why are you showing me this yeah. i don't care about this stuff Interesting. Um, so my, my, my instinct is to ask you what you think. Um, that's like the coach in me, like, well, what do you think? But I, I do, I do want to share my reaction. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and, and it's, you know, it's not something that I thought about in these terms before, but if we know that this is a pressure or this is the environment that we live in, um, that we live in this like dominance, seeking hierarchical culture world that things are always searching for order that that we will eventually land in that place too that the best we can do is um is seek to build something with that in mind and if we truly have an intention to do something different that needs to be called out up front in advance and probably your purpose for building the company and the product that you're creating needs to be in alignment to doing something differently. And you need to make sure that the folks that you're working with really care about that too. Um, mm. And then you're going to have, you know, some values in place that are going to help you make really tough decisions when those decisions come. What's I, I an example like of a value that you've, that you have, I don't know, created or, or, been part of the that kind of um was along these lines of, of balancing the patriarchal system um okay <laughs> that is a great question you know i have my personal values i can't say that i've worked within a company that specifically had a value for that um you could say that 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 Heroku had a, a design value, a beauty value that, that I think goes against the patriarchal system. Um, because what it's saying is that um, it's, it's quality over quantity, um, taking the time and having the patience to do something right and, and create something beautiful is the most important thing. And in fact, that will produce a return for you. Um, but looking at it through, through that lens rather than an efficiency lens and like just do the minimal 
thing necessary to extract the most value possible in the short term. So more like long-term thinking versus short-term thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Actually that, that kind of fits, you know, I could see that as the actual fundamental change was that Heroku was begun with that as its foundational principle. And then when it got acquired, the principles of, well, yeah, but we got to be efficient and we got to be this and that. That's what actually started to impinge on the company and change it to the point where um, people started leaving because it didn't agree with the what they had joined for. The, um, the things that I uh, really, well, when I was looking at all of this, like how do we create a kind of organization where I would want to work, um, and I finally came to the, I don't know if you've read Reinventing Organizations, the no. book by Frederick Leloux. So anyway, um, it's basically uh, describing the history of different kinds of organizations over you know time. And th- that in itself is fascinating because each different kind of organization solved a different problem and then had its own problems. And ultimately... Uh, leads to the emerging uh, idea and implementation of of flat organizations and Mm -hmm. which is like, oh, you know, we're not trained to think that way. So it requires a lot of shifts. But the idea that you have, you know, maybe two or three core foundational principles where, as you say, you know, when you have a question, you can go back to those. And it's not the um you know the 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 company uh mission statement or anything which you know unfortunately nobody can take seriously because we know the mission is to maximize shareholder value and it's not you know these foundational principles and they have to they have to hold in place how many times is the mission statement aspirational and not reality oh yeah (laughs) absolutely well and it's like directed towards the people who might join the company and not for the you know, it's not the whole company. Um, yeah, and and so basically, what you're saying, but those but those foundational principles have to be really baked in, and they have to have feedback mechanisms to to make sure that they keep, you know, that the company keeps on course, and that if if somebody does something that isn't in alignment with those principles everybody is willing to go back and say, oh yeah, that's not in alignment with our principles. And then if the company gets acquired and the acquiring company, you know, doesn't, I, you know, actually I think the ideal flat organization is one that never gets acquired. It's just mm-hmm. not, that's not it its goal. Huge tension. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not its goal. Yeah. yeah. It's, its goal is to be yeah. an amazing place to work and not a, a, a product to be sold. In the case of Heroku, I think the, one of the primary reasons why they, why the founders did go the route of selling was because they felt that, it, that, that by getting the influx of resources from a larger company could actually help them to, uh, to accomplish their, their goals more easily. So I don't think that it was, I don't think that it was out of line with, with their goals that maybe it just, but there's this, there's this lack of understanding of what happens when two cultures come are, together, yeah. the forces, and to realize that, no, when you sell, you are giving up 
you're you're selling control of the company yeah. and then the acquiring company does whatever they want yeah. and you know you may say oh well our our uh, culture will survive this but yeah. unless the acquiring company has the identical culture of yours it's going to dominate yeah. um survived for quite a while i will say yeah. that we we did. didn't do terrible um, I wish I, I knew all the details surrounding the decision, but I really don't. And it's not something I've ever dug into. Um, it actually, I think it would be really nice maybe to kind of reflect on that at some point with the founders. Um, you know, yeah. we could get like a, a Heroku get together at some point to kind of just reflect on the journey and like what we learned and why are we Do still the retrospective on, on this. this. <laughs> yeah. My yeah. friend Esther Derby is really good at stuff like this. I mean, she's like huh. at retrospectives and mm. analyzing things and asking questions and not, you know, making statements and everything. Adam Wiggins kind of did a little bit of this on Twitter mm. uh, a couple months ago, and it was amazing. It was so great to like have him kind of do a, a Twitter retrospective on on Heroku and what was great and what was hard with the acquisition and and all that. Should have Adam on on uh, the podcast sometime. But mm. um, one of the things I, I was thinking about was how when I joined when I joined Heroku, there was many, many times a day, it seemed like I would hear something about the Heroku way. And there was, I think the Heroku way was a way to like capture who Heroku was and what they believed in. But what was interesting about it is until, until a year or two ago, no one had ever actually written down what the Heroku way was. And I think it was Joe Kuttner who actually finally like kind of wrote down his take on what the Heroku way was. But mm -hmm. that was an interesting aspect of Heroku culture was that everyone knew what the Heroku way was, unless like me, when I was new to Heroku, I had to learn what the Heroku way was. And I only kind of learned it through almost example or something. It's like the definition of pornography. <laughs> That's right. You know, when you see it, mm -hmm. yeah. which is a problem, I think, because, you know, as you're saying, there's it's like you need to be able to say, oh, this fits. Well, the Heroku way is the culture. And it's like, unless it's written down, then you can't say, oh, so this is our way. Does this fit with our way? And if a company is acquiring us, do you know, do you? It's just trade-offs to writing it down because when you, as soon as you write it down, you end up with like the biblical book of Leviticus where it just like you, how, how deep do you go into defining all the tiny little aspects of culture? Well, it's like it's, the Zen of Python in within the Zen of Python. It's not, you know, they have wording or actually Tim Peters has wording, which says, okay, this is a, you know, this is what we prefer, but it's not, you know, leaves some, plenty of gray area. Yeah, yeah. Practica practicality beats purity every time. So, you know, I think maybe that's even a phrase that you want to put in. You go, you know, like, this is what we want, but then we also have a way to, to, to work with that when we, yeah. to keep us from becoming basically fascists. Yeah. <laughs> so, tell us about the Heroku way and your your thoughts yeah. on that you know i actually don't have a lot of insight into the heroku way it's definitely something that i heard um but wasn't i feel like it must have started within the engineering team 
and has something to do with the way that you work together, the way that you wrote code specifically, like the aesthetics of it. Um, And so that's not something that I was really involved in. Um, But it strikes me as just another way for saying like engineering culture. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And I, um, I think you're right. Maybe it was, was pretty focused on, on engineering culture specifically. Um, I think there were elements of it that definitely related to the overall company culture. Like, I feel like one of the core kind of company culture things, which we've, we've kind of touched on is delighting the customer and delighting employees. Like, like we should be creating things that delight people. And that, that is definitely like a core value, I guess. And, and I think was, was, part of the Heroku way as well. It's like create delightful things. And how do you know what that is unless you're experiencing that yourself? Yeah. Well, and, and Sharon was doing lots of things to delight, well, right. Create delight right. for exactly. So, so you go, Oh, this is what delight feels like. All right. This is what we want to create for the customer. So, so, okay. So I think it's really interesting, James, that you were a remote employee and you felt all of this, right? Yeah. This is a big discussion. I right did now. get to spend quite a bit of time in the office, which I think certainly helped a lot. Um, but yeah, I think there were. It was it was challenging to uncover what the Heroku way was. I actually remember mm-hmm. feeling frustrated when I first joined because I was remote, and so there was a culture that I wasn't totally engrossed in or, or enveloped in because I wasn't in the office all the time. So I remember feeling a tension around not really understanding the culture that was there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so there was a tension. Yeah. I think as I spent more time in the office, th- that's what ultimately helped overcome it. <laughs> and then, yeah. I, and then I was like, then I, th- I got to the point, I don't know if it was a year or two in where I was like, I totally understand this culture. I can't verbalize it, but I, but I, I know it when I see it. <laughs> Yeah. Um, okay. So that that's awesome though, that you eventually got to it because you, as you mentioned in the beginning that the culture was so much centered around the physical space and like these material moments. Um, and I, and that was feedback that I received regularly from the remote team. Uh, at some point we were half distributed, half, you know, HQ. So it was, it was significant to get that feedback and that we really needed to change and not center the majority of our resources around these like physical experiences, but to, to shift that. And at the time I was like, wait a second. So you're telling us that we like, shouldn't go out to dinner anymore, you know, because that creates a different experience for our employees who are not here. And it was hard to wrap my head around that, but I eventually got it. Like in order to be truly successful and to rope everyone in, we needed to level the playing field. And that's what I love about my current company right now is that, that, you know, we're all distributed. We're all working from home. We all have the same shape square (laughs) in our zoom call. Um, But what's missing from that, what I really miss and we did well at Heroku is when we did gather, we gathered extremely well. We we had our, our distributed employees fly out. They brought their partners and their children. Like we got to know each person on this totally other level because their families were involved too. Because we wanted um, Heroku to be a wonderful place for the employees to work, but we also wanted it to be so awesome that their families felt it too. 
to think to think that you know the the the, the work culture stops you know within the working hours is is false like, right what do you talk about when you go home to your family it's all intertwined yeah and so it's important to help um kind of just to to consider the impact beyond the walls of our company yeah. and to look at the families and the communities as well do you think it's easier to create culture or change culture or uh, i don't know influence culture in a when everyone is in a shared office is that just an easier or maybe i don't know um you know i'm going to say no I don't know. I'm really in denial about this right now that I'm really You're like, in the midst of kind of transition from from to virtual mm-hmm. virtual culture. <laughs> yeah, and maybe it just has a lot to do with how I've evolved personally. Um I I I I I haven't lost any um quality in human interaction through the virtual landscape. Um, I'm also an introvert and I get drained super easy by people. So I can't, I can't speak for everyone, but that's for me personally. I think if you make the decision to interact in this way and you look at what needs to be done and you just push yourself to do things that are, are maybe unusual, that you can still build a really, really good, really good culture. Yeah. So my, uh, vision of the future, including all kinds of organizations, especially schools, because they're, they're in the midst of change, but also now that we're doing this remote working uh, experience is that uh, getting together is going to be important for, for everybody because mm. that in-person experience is uh, special. But I think doing it all the time takes the specialness away from it. Mm. Um, and so I see that we'll have uh, like retreats and events and things like that, which are time boxed, you know, and it's like, yeah, people will come together and they'll do these kind of intense experiences where there's a lot of connection and stuff. And then they'll be able to go back to wherever they are. And the benefits of that is that you can choose, you know, you can get the best people for the fit that you're looking for regard, you know, without making people up, you know, cause where you live is part of your, I don't know, personal culture. Mm. And, um, and so a company or a, a university or a school or whatever is going to be this combination of, remote learning, and then punctuated by these in-person little conference retreat experiences. Yeah. That's that's what I would think, wow, not only is that going to be uh, probably a lot less expensive for everybody involved, but also a lot nicer experience, ultimately, hmm. than having to commute every day just to be in the same space. Right. Yeah. What I love about that vision is that it sounds like we're not just talking about like intercompany kind of community and relationship building, but also like other companies like cross pollinating, like, you know, in in your conferences where you have people from all over the place coming together. And and I like this idea. The way to make that work is um, is we all need to become storytellers and documentarians. 
So thinking about like, what are, you know, and, and I think we are, it's kind of what social media has done to us. We're like, what is my experience right now? And how can I share that? Um, but really like being intentional about that within our, our teams and our companies so that if we go, do go have this like special experience and we come up with these great ideas that we bring it back and share it with everyone else. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's one of the things in the reinventing organizations book is they talk about not, you know, organizations, not competing with each other, but collaborating with each other. How can we, you know, rather than how do we win over this other organization? It's like, no, how do we work with, because our superpower, according to, what's his name? Harari, I think he is. He wrote Sapiens. Our superpower is cooperation. And we've created the system which goes against that, where it's, it's, you know, we go, no, no, competition, that's what makes everything better. Huh. Mm -hmm. In my uh, HR and, you know, office management communities, we've been doing a lot of like open source work together um, and sharing, you know, what's been working for us and um, to the point where people will share full slide decks or full processes that they've written to address, you know, certain issues. It's really vibrant and it's super alive, um, sharing, you know, compensation data to a certain degree, but it's, it's awesome. We're truly working together um, to benefit the entire, you know, industry. Mm -hmm. hmm. That's cool. Yeah. Um, so I had, I also had a question. I, and again, this is, this is sort of going against the normal flow of things, which is, uh, this is something that comes up in one of my nonviolent communication workshops where the leader will, somebody's in a rush to get to the point that they want to make. And the leader will either say, okay, slow down or stop and look at this important point on the way to the point you thought was your important point, And let's sit with that. And it's made me think a lot about what works for me is not rushing to to a solution but actually letting the solution kind of emerge organically and this requires a lot of focus on our whole culture of urgency uh, it's like you know we and i made a tweet a while back where i said uh tongue-in-cheek um well you have to have a schedule how else would you know if you're meeting the schedule <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, some people reacted to that. Well, yeah, you have to have a schedule because otherwise, how would you know if you're meeting the schedule? Of course, my point was it's a it's an arbitrary construct and it's actually, uh, well, I would hope that people would see it as often pre predominantly counterproductive hmm. because it, it builds in this urgency, which I think produces less good work. What's interesting in it, Hiroko, I never really felt, I never really felt like ur urgency was never, was never a focus. It was, it was like, are we doing the right thing for the customer? Like, is this, is this something, is this going to be something delightful? Is this, you know, it was, but yeah, urgency wasn't. Are we doing it on time? Wasn't a, you know, it's like, never really, why would that make a difference yeah. with your fundamental? It was much more, are we doing this right? Yeah. If, if, if that's your fundamental value is what is 
what is going to be best for the customer? How, why would an urgency be a thing around yeah. that? Only if you're, only if you're saying, oh, but our competition might get there first, or right. we've got to, you know, wipe everybody else out or we, anyway. Yeah. yeah. I think it's the need to predict the future um, and to, to show whether it's our, it's if you have leaders who are leading a company and they need to monitor progress towards goals, then they need a mechanism for that. And if they're reporting into a board, uh, you know, that's where that culture is coming from. Like what are the expectations that are being put on them? And then how's that cascading down into the company? So yeah, who has the power? Um, and and the <laughs> the ability, the nervous system to allow for things to arise versus the need to force them. Um, I would say the illusion of certainty. It's mm. like, oh, I really like knowing that something is going to happen. You know, my mm -hmm. profits are going to be this, and we're going to. That feels good to me. So. I want to create a system where I can guarantee that so I can have can, that. And feel like of, you've controlled it. <laughs> you feel like I've controlled it. And the thing is, of course, when you look at any of this stuff, you go, no, we we have no way and of, of being certain about anything. And adding that stuff just reduces the certainty because you're you're burdening the whole process with this well we got to have the metrics and we got to have the you know all the things necessary to guarantee certainty. And um, we'll just ignore the fact that, well, we fail so often. In fact, that's a good question. How do you, in a company, because most companies just go, oh, employee turnover, that's just a thing that happens. And yeah, our employee turnover is really high, but so is everybody's. What are you going to do? And to me, that's a huge feedback um, piece of information. It's like, what's our employee turnover? And is there something that we can do to you know, change that. What's your, how, how do you, how do you deal with that? It, it's, it's a balance. It's a balance because on one hand, yes, people do leave and there could be very good reasons for those people to be moving on, but to be dismissive and say, Oh, it's no big deal. And not look at the reasons critically is a mistake. Um, and then when you were what you were talking about earlier, you made me think of. Are you familiar with Myers Briggs? Sure. The personality um, test. Mm -hmm. So you have the. Um, so I'm an INFP. Um, so the P stands for perceiving versus judging, um, and and the I is intuitive versus ex extroversion. I think. So it's kind of like I'm very much this person that likes to interact with the soup in the unknowns in a really abstract way. And I'm very comfortable with kind of like letting things fall where they fall and then turning that into something, because to me, that feels really authentic. However, if you let me be in charge all of the time, I'm actually not sure how much we would get done. And so I require, and I often partner myself with people who are the exact opposite. And I think um, on the Vibe team at Heroku, Kathy was a perfect example of this. She was such a high energy driver and structured person. She also had a ton of empathy, right? So she and I really connected on that level, but she was like, get shit done person. 
And, um, and I feel like together with those two energies, it was really powerful. And so I think that we have to create space for both, for both of those mindsets in order to be successful. Yeah, finding a way, both creating awareness of what we are not able to do and offer and and then finding ways to balance that. I guess, I guess my, yeah, my thing is that we've gone so far towards um, putting the people who are the get shit done people mm-hmm. on a pedestal that we don't have that balance. Mm-hmm. It's all about getting stuff done. It's like, well, if uh, the open office half cubicle things, if that's the most efficient way to cram people into an office, then that's what we're going to do. Cause you know, I can show you the numbers and maybe that's, maybe it comes back down to that. You can't manage what you can't measure delusion that business schools have, have shoved on us. And so it's like, well, I got to see numbers for everything. And I mean, I'm a scientist. I understand the the value of measure, but uh, that doesn't always, you know, it's not always possible. It doesn't always give you, uh, how did you, how did you measure the success of vibe? (laughs) You know what? How did, how did did the founders say that Sharon, you're doing an amazing job? Like what did they use data for that? Um, no. Absolutely not. And, and I really lost a lot of sleep over trying to find data. I really did. I was kind of resentful. Um, Now, of course, I think I could come up with some really easy metrics. But at the time, I was like, what? You can't measure this. Um, People are just happy. But I think I maybe had like a really, really funny metric in my mind that I didn't write down anywhere. We have this basement. And um we did our all hands meetings down there and we also had a gym and like a ping pong table. Um, and sometimes when we would have parties, uh, there was maybe a, like a PlayStation or something like we did karaoke yeah, down so. there. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and my metric was like, you know, like how many like sleepovers were happening in the office? <laughs> like how many people were having so much fun downstairs in the basement? That they just never left. Right. Um, <laughs> You know, and to me, that was just a sign that the space we had created was very comfortable and forgiving. Well, it wasn't in a nefarious goal. Like, like it wasn't like, oh, we got to get these people to work more. And so let's, you know, get a foosball table so that they are here longer. And, you know, it oh, wasn't, it wasn't Lord, a no. manipulative. The intent mm-hmm. is really important. But see, what's interesting about that is that you're talking about um, basically a relative measure, not an absolute Number, how many keystrokes are these people, you know, let's measure the keystrokes and we'll say more where you're saying, oh, people seem more happy or less happy. And that's one of the things that I saw in when I saw a retrospective done is that it wasn't it wasn't a like, let's look at the absolute. It's just like, OK, so at this point in the project, you were you felt less happy. And at this point, you felt more happy. And then it's a measure, but it's not something where you're, you're going, um, you know, oh, well, you know, we have, we have a hundred percent code coverage, so we're done (laughs) or, or something like that. It's, you know, maybe that's the, maybe that's the thing is to say, 
we won't have absolute numbers here, but we can compare it. We can see trends. Trends, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the quality. I was just thinking that, you know, if I had noticed that people stopped traveling to the office with their families or their partners stopped stopping by with their children, that would be a huge indicator that something was wrong. Mm-hmm. That folks are not happy. They don't feel good about this place. That they're no longer feeling proud and inviting their friends to come hang out at our social hours. Um, yeah, Indicator. But- that's a good word. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. An indicator is a trend, essentially, mm-hmm. it's comparing its past. Well, or just a way to say, I mean, because sometimes it could be a, you know, you could say, oh, a red flag goes up here because something has dropped below, you know, well, that one ex- exactly. It's like, oh, people have stopped bringing their families. And to a traditional business school mind, they're going, oh, that's not really, you know, doesn't okay, fit so with yeah. our model. <laughs> so we'll ignore it. So, so going back to what you're saying about the uh, nefarious reasons behind having different like perks or amenities, right? So, so going back to the food, why we served lunch, right? It wasn't to keep people in the office longer. Um, like it was literally born out of my personal health journey. Um, so I've had a number of different food intolerances that caused me to have headaches, um, like sore muscles, kind of the inability to really like think. Uh, and I knew how strongly food impacted me and my ability to show up in the world. And I looked at what people were typically eating, which is a lot of sugar and like heavy sleepy foods or like, uh, over caffeinating themselves. And I didn't want that for the team. I wanted the team to have like real energy food, protein, high quality protein, fruits, vegetables, and kind of set that tone and pace that like, we're not here to drive ourselves into the ground eating chocolate covered espresso beans. We're here to, um, to, we're here to like do our best work and experience it, experience it, and then have energy when we go back home. So that's kind of where the food program started. And it was also a way to bring us all around a table to just chat and share time and take a break from working. One of the coolest things with, with the, the lunch uh, stuff at Heroku, and I think you maybe experienced this, but the tables were just these huge long, long tables. Th- yeah, long tables. And so you would just sit down and meet people from other teams and mm-hmm. – this doesn't happen at Google where, cause you know, there's small tables. And so you go with mm. your friends and you sit at your, your table with your friends, mm. but at Heroku it's, it was, no, you sit at this large table and you every single time meet somebody new and talk to somebody from another team. And, and the thing is if, um, see, I wonder if Salesforce didn't know those things that you have just described to me. It's like, Oh, we have a clear goal here, which is, um, food that in you know energizes you mm-hmm. and uh and and also you know the long table so people can get to know each other and if that had been clear they might have said oh yeah we don't want to mess with that because we understand what you're trying to do here yeah it's but, it was also about practicality and scale you know the the salesforce office was downtown with tons of lunch options and we were in south of market with a couple of places um, That's right. And what works that. for a small company shouldn't be expected to work for, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a super large true. company like Salesforce. 
but yeah, yeah, it's true. Had... Like things that work in the small don't always work in the large. Mm -hmm. and maybe that's an example of one. Yeah, but I could imagine. I mean, if Salesforce had been designed with that in mind, I think it could have worked. But I mean, mm -hmm. where they were, they couldn't change, and so instead they they changed, uh, changed her, Heroku. Yeah, yeah, yeah which mm -hmm. is. I think well, one company dominates the other. That's why they bought them. So that's you can't expect it not to change. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Oh, it's a it's a hard problem. So but many. I think I think one of the reasons it's such a hard problem is because our whole you know Western culture has so many of these uh, pieces that are imbued in it that were taught basically from the cradle. You, you have to have a boss. You have to be you efficient. Know, do you have to be efficient? You have to, um, you have to be urgent. You know, you know, it's power all these, is good. Power is good. All of these, you know, you want to get power because otherwise somebody's going to have power over you. So all of these things, which we don't ask, we don't, we just accept as a, as as the air as the water that yeah, we are swimming water. in yeah. and uh so when you're trying to make a difference when you're trying to change these things you actually have to look at this and ask those questions and so many people are going to go well no that's not how the world works yeah and thankful that heroku sharon was able to to ask those questions and and encourage to make changes that kind of went against the usual even if it only lasted for a while yeah yeah, yeah you have to know what you want so you have to spend time thinking about what's important to you and the world that you want to live in and who do you need to be in order to influence that and then you just have to be super committed and find other people who are also committed and align yourself to those folks and don't give up you're going to face a lot of resistance don't give up huh. that pretty much sums it up Sums it up. Well, thank you so much, Sharon. Um, it's been a pleasure to talk to you and learn from your experiences. And and I'm so grateful that I got to be part of those uh, the vibe that you created at Heroku. So yes. thanks for joining thank us. Thank you. Really enjoyed speaking with both of you.